We're going to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 1 to 11. If you do need a Bible to, to read, to look through it, there are Bibles at the back that you can go and get, uh, or you can follow it on the screen. Verses 1 to 11. There is no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, uh, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you have promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that at all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor, their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will be stout in thanksgiving to God. Amen. Thanks, Roderick. Well, for the next 20, 25 minutes or so, we've got a bit of a challenge. And I've got a challenge to try and convince you that God wants you to live a generous, open-hearted, open-handed, warm, sacrificial life, and living that life is the best way to live. And it's a particular challenge to do it in 20 or 25 minutes, and, and to convince you, and you've already heard uh, an amazing story of what God can do with some money, what God can do with people who are committed to God's causes here on the streets of Edinburgh as people are released from human tracking, trafficking and slavery. But I believe that God wants every single one of us to be involved in his work. And that the life that God wants us to live is that generous, open-handed, warm, hospitable, welcoming, sacrificial, take-risk type of life that God wants for you and for me. It'd be very easy, feeling as we are some of us just now, to want to play it safe. We've been through two years of a pandemic. We've been through all sorts of stuff. And it's very tempting just to want to hunker down and hold on to what we've got. But now is not the time to do that. And preaching this message to this congregation is particularly challenging. Because if I'm honest, those of you under the age of 35 are of a different generation 
to me. I know it's come as a bit of a shock to you and to me, but we are of a different generation. Libby thinks that she's still in your generation, but she's not. Um, but we're in a different generation, and we think differently about money, and we think differently about lots of things, but in particular, we think differently about this whole subject of giving. I'm going to confess something to you. I'm going to tell you a secret, that when church leaders get together, they talk about you. They talk about you. They talk about people under the age of 35, and we sidle up to one another, and we do it on social media, and we do it in face-to-face -face conferences, and we say, have you cracked it? Have you found the secret? Has your church discovered a way of getting people under the age of 35 to give financially? And all across the UK, church leaders go, no, I haven't cracked it. I haven't cracked it. Have you cracked it? I haven't cracked it. Who's cracked it? Somebody must have cracked it. Because when I say direct debit, you think of a new debit card. When I say standing order, you think it's a pub on George Street. You think about a whole way of being and, and, and thinking about money that is totally different. The icon for my generation, I can remember at the age of four, being taken by my mum and opening a savings account. Age four, and there was a little book that I had to, to write in. Uh, Malcolm can remember because he's even older than me. Um, but but you, you wrote in this book every week how much you put. Now, the icon of your generation is not a savings book. The icon is a credit card or Apple Pay. Most of you don't carry cash. You wouldn't know a pound note if it or a pound coin if it fell over you. Um, so I've got a particular challenge to convince you that if you don't start giving now, particularly if you're a student, when you have no money or little money or your parents' money, you will not start giving when you have more. If you don't start giving now, and whether it's a pound a week or 10 pounds a week, that's not the important thing. But if you don't establish the principle of, at the start of a month, deciding what you're going to give, you will not give anything when you're on 50, 60, 80, 90, 100,000 pounds a year. Because you need to establish the principle now when you've got very little or when you've got your parents' money and if you're thinking, well, when I, when I, when I, you will never get to that point of when. And talking about this subject is also challenging because at the moment, I don't know about you, but it is, we feel just overwhelmed as we were singing that song, All Hail King Jesus. My mind was just flashing to Ukraine. And praying for the lordship and the kingship of Jesus to be over the nations. And praying for peace in Ukraine. And for me, it's personal. My brother-in-law is Ukrainian. He has family in Lviv. So this is personal for me. And if I'm honest, two weeks ago, I'd written a talk for tonight. I'd written a talk two weeks ago because the last week, Kathy and I have uh, been on holiday. We were fortunate enough to go uh, to the south of Spain. But we had this strange juxtaposition this week of sitting in a hotel room in southern Spain, but at the same time watching on our TV screen in our hotel room what was happening in Kiev and the cities in Ukraine. 
And this odd juxtaposition of knowing that a thousand miles away from where we were sitting in Spain, people were fleeing for their lives because of bombs and artillery. And the talk that I'd written two weeks ago was never going to cut it for tonight. The talk that I'd written two weeks ago was okay, but it wasn't great. The talk that I'd written two weeks ago was not going to cut it because in two weeks, everything has changed in our world. Two weeks ago, a maternity clinic and a children's hospital weren't being bombed to obliteration. People weren't running for their lives. Europe wasn't facing the greatest humanitarian crisis for 70 years as millions of people are fleeing for their lives from what's going on in Ukraine. One of the things that we do as a church is run something called the Alpha Course, which is a course for people discovering or wanting to ask questions about the Christian faith. And the founder of the Alpha Course is a guy called Nicky Gumbel. And if you've ever seen Nicky Gumbel um, talk, preach, speak, or in particular interview somebody who is a guest on the Alpha Course at the church in London, HTB, Holy Trinity Brompton, where it was begun, uh, Nicky has three particular phrases that are associated with him. And the phrases are, so lovely, so encouraging, and so amazing. And at various points, those three phrases will occur when Nicky Gumbel is talking or when he's interviewing somebody. You will hear Nicky say, that's so lovely, or so amazing, or so encouraging. And some of us follow Nicky on social media and on Twitter. I was stunned on Wednesday when Nicky posted this. And the words lovely and amazing and encouraging were not there in Nicky's tweet on Wednesday. The words that were there were evil, brutal, criminal, barbaric, heartless, inhumane, horrific, demonic, wicked, cruel, senseless, heinous, murderous, and vicious. Because what we are seeing is evil personified. What is happening in the Ukraine is evil, and we have to name it. And we can pray about it, and we can think about our response to um, refugees, and we'll do that as a church over the next few weeks. But it is evil, and it's evil personified. And in the face of that violence and that horrendous cruelty that's going on, it is easy to feel overwhelmed. And all this has come after two years of a global pandemic. And many of us carry the scars and have paid the cost of, of going through the last two years and all the loss and all the grief and all the missed opportunities and the pain and the isolation and the, the wearing the masks and the, the anxiety that some people have felt. And lots of people are feeling as though their resilience is really low. They're struggling with the mental health. There's an increased level of anxiety. And on top of that, there's the increased uh, price of, of energy and electricity and gas. There's uh, fuel poverty. There's food poverty. There's mental health issues. And one thing after another just seems to be piling on and on and on. And it seems so tempting to hunker down and to hold on to what we've got. But as a church, the paradox is that we know that we are not living in ordinary times. We're living in extraordinary times. Because something is happening spiritually at the same time. Week by week, at churches like P's and G's across the UK, and we're seeing this too, there are people coming to church who have never been to church before, particularly in their 20s and 30s. And you may be one of them here this evening. 
Week by week over the last 18 months, if you talk to Paul, if you talk to Libby, if you talk to me, we've talked to people who have never been to church before. And something has happened during lockdown to make them think about faith and God in a new way. And they've said to us, you know what you said at the start, that what we're doing in church isn't normal. We don't know what normal is because we've never been to one of these things before. There's over a hundred people who've joined Peace and G's over the last few months. Some from other churches, but some who have never been to church before. At Bounce two weeks ago, there was a um, hundred children and their parents and carers. There was a huge um, inflatable castle here as a hundred kids bounced and sang and danced and played because they wanted to be together. And their parents and their grandparents and their carers were here as well. Something is happening. We're running more Alpha courses than we've ever run before. We're seeing people become Christians and, and, and want to ask questions about the Christian faith in a, a different way. We have more people in connect groups, our midweek expression of church, than we have ever had before. We are not living in ordinary times. There's this paradox of incredible need and incredible suffering, but also incredible opportunity. That Chinese proverb that people quoted endlessly at the start of the pandemic, that the Chinese word for crisis is the same Chinese word as opportunity, frustratingly is true. It's a crisis, but it's also an opportunity. And as a church, we want to make the most of it. We've just celebrated eight years of doing our Saturday meal, where every week we feed between 80 and 100 people, many of whom are on the margins, they're rough sleeping, they're, they're, they're lonely, and they come every Saturday for a meal and a conversation and to be treated with dignity and respect. Two weeks ago, we hosted with Edinburgh City Mission a meeting for women who'd come as refugees from Afghanistan. And this was the first opportunity that they had had to be in a room with officers from Police Scotland. And we got an email from Edinburgh City Mission saying that meeting will be life-changing for those women because they were able to hear that the police in Scotland have a very different attitude and a very different approach to the police that they knew and experienced in Afghanistan. And we're able to do bounce, we're able to do meetings like the Saturday meal, we're able to do meetings for refugees from Afghanistan because we have this building and this facility because people over the last 20 years gave and gave financially. You see, Jesus spoke more about money than any other subject. He spoke more about money than he did about prayer, he did about sex, he did about heaven, and he did about hell. Two-thirds of the stories or parables that Jesus told were about the subject of money because Jesus recognized the power of money. Money itself is neutral. It can be used for good or it can be used for bad, but money itself is neutral. Jesus said that it was the love of money that was the root of all evil, not money itself. The love of money is the root of all evil, but money itself is neutral, but it is powerful, and Jesus recognized its power. Putin recognizes the power of money. That's why eventually, a bit behind the rest of the world, the UK government has eventually began to take financial sanctions against Putin and his regime. They've taken cultural sanctions, 
But not being at the Eurovision Song Contest is not going to be a reason why there's peace in Ukraine. Not having the Champions League final in St. Petersburg is important, but it's not going to cut it. It's when Putin starts losing millions of pounds and dollars, that's when it will start to bite, because money itself is powerful. Money talks. One writer, Daryl Bock, said this about money. Money has many of the characteristics of a deity or a god. It can give us security, induce guilt, give us freedom, and it seems to be omnipresent. And most sinister of all is its bid for omnipotence, to be all-powerful. Money is powerful, and money talks. And even though Paul had a tricky relationship with the church in Corinth, and this letter that he wrote, the first letter and the second letter and, um, to the church in Corinth, that the second one is described as a letter of tears, he is not averse to bringing up the subject of money. And he talks about money in chapter 8 and chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians for one very good reason. You see, 12 months previously, this church in Corinth had been amongst the first to respond when they'd heard about a need. The first church, the church in Jerusalem, had hit hard times. It was really tough being a follower of Jesus Christ in first century Jerusalem. It meant that you were shunned by your neighbors. It meant they were, you were shunned by your family. You probably lost your job. You lost your employment prospects, any prospects of promotion. You lost money. You lost advancement. And now there was a really bad harvest, and there was a famine in Jerusalem. And the Christians in Jerusalem were not now just being persecuted and ostracized. Now they were starving. And so Paul sent word to all the churches that he'd planted across Asia and Europe, and one of the first to respond was the church in Corinth. Now, if you've read 1 Corinthians, you know that one of the things that, that Paul has to correct is the way in which this Corinthian church viewed themselves. They thought they were the spiritual bee's knees. They thought they were the spiritual Celtic or the spiritual rangers or the spiritual um, man city even though it pains me to say that. Um, but they thought they were the best of the best of the best. And they were. They, they, could, they could sing. They could sing the songs. They could dance the dances. They could wave the flags. They would prophesy. They would speak in tongues. And Paul has to write a letter to say, you're not as spiritually mature as you think you are. And in this letter, he has to say to them, I'm going to talk to you about money. Because 12 months ago, you were the, one of the first ones to say, we'll give. We'll give to the church in Jerusalem. We will meet those needs. We'll give money. But 12 months had gone by, and nothing had come from the church in Corinth. Zilch, nada, zero, nothing at all. And so, therefore, Paul has to write to them and remind them what they'd said. And to twist the knife, I don't know whether you got it as Roderick read the words, but there is a hint of sarcasm in Paul, and there's a hint of menace and threat. And to understand what Paul does, we need to see a map of, of Greece. This is ancient Greece. And in the north, there was this place called Macedonia. That was what the area was in the north of Greece. And in the south was this place called Achaia. Or, Roderick, you call it Achaia. I think it's the Gallic pronunciation of, of Achaia. And in the north, there were these places, Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi. And in the south, there was Corinth and Athens. 
And there was tension, imagine this, there was tension between people in the north and people in the I mean, imagine a country where there was tension between people in the north and people in the south. Because the people in the south, the people in Corinth and the people in Athens, they thought they were the educated ones. They thought they were the posh ones. They thought they were the sophisticated ones. I know, it's incredible to believe this. But there are countries where people in the south think that they're better than people in the north. And the people in Corinth and Athens... They've been affected by that sort of elitist thought, even in the church in Corinth, and they thought they were the best church. And so what does Paul do? Paul says, I'm going to speak to you about a church that's generous. I'm going to tell you about a church that has been incredibly generous, so generous that I've had to tell them to stop giving because they've given and given and given and given, and I've had to say to them, stop And the church that he names, the church that he cites, is the church in Macedonia. And he says, you think that you're generous. You think that you're spiritual. I'm going to tell you about a really spiritual and generous church, and it's the church from the north. It's like me saying that there's a really generous church in Glasgow. That's sort of twisting the knife. And worse than that, he says, I'm going to send three people to you. I'm going to send Titus. The Corinthian Christians liked Titus. He was like sort of good cop to Paul's bad cop. And then Paul says, I'm going to send two other people. And he refers to them as, I'm going to send two brothers. And he doesn't tell us their names. He doesn't say they're Aquila and some, you know, whoever, Justice, or he just says, I'm going to send you two brothers. And the only detail that he tells the church in Corinth about them is, and they're Macedonian. And there's a sort of, it's just, in my mind's eye, Paul goes a bit sort of, you know, sort of gangsterish, and he goes a bit sort of Ray Winston, and he goes, I'm going to send you the brothers. <laughs> and the brothers are Macedonian. And the brothers are a bit clumsy. Know what I mean? See? Things, things tend to break a bit when the brothers are around, and I'm going to, I sound like Josh Gilbert now, um, <laughs> I'm going to send the, the brothers around, and they're going to come and get the money. So you better get this collection ready, because if you don't, it's going to be a bit embarrassing, isn't it? It's going to be a bit embarrassing for you, never mind for me. That's the gist of what Paul says in the Cockney uh, in Second Corinthians. But he tells them in chapter 8, verses 2 and 5, that the Macedonians gave in the midst of a severe trial, overflowing joy in the face of extreme poverty, welling up in rich generosity. You see, to be a Christian in the north was more difficult than being a Christian in the south. To be a Christian in the north meant that you were persecuted. To be a Christian in the north meant that you may well end up in prison. To be a Christian in the north meant that you may be put to death for your faith in Jesus. And yet, the Macedonian Christians had given and given and given and given to the point where Paul had to say, stop, you have given enough. And what he's doing is he's shaming the Corinthian church. And so he says to them in chapter 9 and verse 2, I've been boasting about you to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you in Achaia, we're ready to give. 
and chapters verses uh, 3 and 5, I'm, I'm sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. I'm sending the boys round. Get the money ready. And then he gives us three principles about giving. Firstly, he says, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give. Chapter 9 and verse 7. Giving should be deliberate and thought through. It's absolutely right that we should give spontaneously. It's absolutely right that you hear uh, an interview with someone like Joy. You see a video about human trafficking in Scotland, and you think, I want to give to that. That's absolutely right. And we're asking you to give to the microphone. But that sort of giving should be on top of the deliberate, regular, thought-through giving that you are already giving. You need to think about your giving. You need to think about your money. Or if you're a student, you need to think about your parents' money and how much of that you're going to give away. When we decided to do this building project 20 years ago, there was a fundamental decision that we came to because we realized that we had a problem. We, in the end, had to raise seven million pounds, and, and seven million pounds was given by this church. People here this evening, you gave towards that seven million pounds. But we discovered a year before our first pledge day that we had a problem. We had people in the church who didn't know about money. They were aware at the start of the month of money coming in. And they were aware, 28 days later, of there being no money left. But they didn't know what the connection between the two was. And they didn't know how it had happened. And what was slightly more alarming was that some of these people worked for the Royal Bank of Scotland. <laughs> and some of these people worked for Standard Life. And some of these people worked for... Halifax and the Bank of Scotland and Lloyd's and banks that don't exist anymore because of these people who used to work in those <laughs> banks. And we realized that one of the things we had to do to help people to give was to enable them to plan a household budget, to look at what money was coming in at the start and if we were asking them to give what they were giving out of. Because if you don't know what you're giving out of, you won't know how much you think you should give. So giving should be deliberate and thought through. Secondly, Paul says it shouldn't be out of guilt or coercion, chapter 9 and verse 7. God wants people to give not reluctantly or under compulsion. It's very easy in church to make people feel guilty. You can make people feel guilty about sex, about not praying enough, about not witnessing enough, and very easy to make people feel guilty about money. I used to work for a church, and we had a series every January, and it literally was called the January Beat-Up. And the vicar would stand up for four consecutive Sundays, and he would beat us every week into submission. And it worked. But boy, did we feel beaten up and guilty. We weren't giving out of joy or not reluctantly or under compulsion. You can give out of guilt for a while, but actually, you just feel ground down by it. This is such a different picture to the picture that Paul paints here of, of replicating the character of God in how we give. 
You see, when we give, it's been said that we are never more like God than when we give. And God does not give to us out of guilt. He doesn't give to us reluctantly. He gives because He loves us. He gave His only Son because He loved the world. God does not give out of compulsion or guilt. Because, chapter 9 and verse 7, thirdly and finally, God loves a cheerful giver. Paul says giving should be cheerful. One translation is that God loves a hilarious giver. Now, I don't know about you. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I've been in lots of churches, lots of church services. But when the offertory, remember that thing when we used to announce it, and the baskets went round in that strange thing that Christians do, nobody went, woohoo, it's the offering! (laughs) There is only one time when I have been in a service where the giving was hilarious and cheerful. Two years ago, two and a half years ago, Kathy and I were fortunate to go out with World Vision to uh, Tanzania. And on the first Sunday, we went to an open-air ordination service that lasted five hours. Five hours. There were about 2,000 people in the congregation. At the end of the five hours, my forehead was the color of these chairs. (laughs) And about two-thirds of the way through the service, an ordination service, it was a sort of joint Anglican Methodist thing, and they, they called for an offering. And it was an offering unlike any other offering I've ever been part of, because from across this sort of court, huge courtyard with 2,000 people, people started to dance. The music went up, and they had a bit of a beat going on, and they were coming, and they were coming forward with their money, and they sort of did a thing going forward, and, and they, they started to move, and they formed a queue, 2,000 people, and they were queuing to dance to the front with the music going with their offerings. And then some of them started to giggle, really giggle, because they twigged the 12 white people. <laughs> and they started to laugh, and they started to point at us. What are the Mazungi? that's what they call white people, what are the Mazungi going to do? And we sort of look one another. What do we do? I mean, we're we're British, and we're Anglicans. We don't dance, <laughs> but we thought we'd better join in. So we did this sort of, you know, sort of <laughs> dad dance thing up, and they really found it hilarious. I mean, they thought it was just rib tickling. They were just gone. But that's the only occasion when I have known hilarious giving. But Paul says that we should give hilariously, and it's totally countercultural. That we're not giving out of guilt or coercion because we feel forced to, but we want to reflect the character of God, and the Macedonians understood grace. That's why they gave. They gave back in response to God because they understood all that God had given to them. Sometimes people say, does P's and G's teach tithing? This idea that Christians should give 10%. We don't teach tithing. Because if you know anything about the Old Testament, you'll know this. People were encouraged in the Old Testament to give 10% to the temple. 
And the temple looked after the priests, the clergy, people like Libby and Paul and me, and it paid for their, their salaries. But at one of the three festivals, at the Feast of Tabernacles or Pentecost or Passover, a faithful Jew was also encouraged to give another 10%. And then they were encouraged to give another 3% on top of that towards the poor. And if their business made any profit, they were to take 3% of that and also give that away. So the average faithful Jew in the Old Testament gave between 26 and 28% of their income away. That's why we don't teach tithing. The tithing was always meant to be the floor, not the ceiling. Jesus said that your right, he said to his followers, your righteousness should surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So if they're giving 26 to 28%, bad news, followers of Jesus, we have to give more. It's totally countercultural. And what we're asking you to do is totally countercultural. What we're asking you to do at the moment is bonkers. We are £10,000 a month down in our general fund. What it costs us to do life and ministry in, in the life of peace and Jesus. It costs us £36,000 a year to do our children's ministry. It costs us £17,000 a year to do Saturday meal. It costs us £60,000 a year to be able to offer our counseling service. We're £10,000 a month down against our budget. But over here we're saying we want you to give £40,000 so we can just give it away. It does not make any human sense. It's bonkers, but it's the right thing to do. And that's why we're asking you to do it. But we're hoping and praying that as you give to that, you also either begin to give to this or you increase your giving to this. Because once you discover the gift of giving, you'll find the truth of the words that Paul says, that if you sow generously, you'll reap generously. Once you realize that everything that you have belongs to God and isn't actually yours, then it changes your mindset. Rather than asking how much should I give, your question really is how much do I get to keep? Because everything that I have belongs to God. And it is totally countercultural. A writer, Joe Stoll, said this about materialism. He said the, the real point of materialism is, is not how much we have, but what has us. It's not what we hold, but how tightly we hold it. And once you start to live life like that, rather than like that, it changes everything. Remember, we are never more like God than when we give. And giving, it's been said, is a sign of God's inward grace. If you know what grace is, you live life totally differently. You think about money differently. You think about ambition differently. You think about work differently. If you're a student, you think about your parents' money differently. And you start to give, because if you don't start giving now, you will not give when you have more. But you give out of response to who God is, and you can never outgive God. Because the value and the worth that He placed on your life was the death 
of the only thing that he could give, and that was his son. Mark and the band are going to lead us in a time of response, but would you please stand? And I'd love to lead us in prayer together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for all the good things that you give to us. Thank you for your challenge to us to be involved in the work of your kingdom. That you choose people like us to get our hands dirty, to give back to you the money that you've entrusted to us, and to see that money used for the extension of your kingdom so that people might be touched by your love and your mercy and your compassion and your kindness. And we pray that you would help us to give as you give, to give and not count the cost, to realize that everything that we have belongs to you. And would you help us to lead those generous, open-handed, open-hearted lives that you long for us to live, that we will not believe the lies of our culture and our society that say we are determined by how much stuff we have, but that we will learn to give and give and give and give because that is a reflection of who you are the God who gives. Would you change our hearts? Would you change our minds? Would you change our wallets, our credit card statements, our bank account statements, so that when people look at them, they can see that we're different. They can see that we're your follower because of the way in which we give our money. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.